coming up on Life is a Festival. They welcomed me with open arms. And that's the thing, like, like you said, it becomes almost like this community for whatever amount of time the party is, like whether it's two days or a day, you really become like a community. Everyone's there for each other. And you even saw it as we were running from like the rockets and the gunshots. You saw the way the way these kids acted. Nobody was ever pushing each other out of the way to run away from the gunshots. Everyone was helping each other. Everyone was like, if someone fell, someone pulled them up. You just really saw people take care of each other. You really saw that they really were psychedelic kids, that they really were caring and loving even in those moments. Even for some of them, it was their last moments. And you still saw that in them. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. I am your host, Eamon Armstrong. Recently in New York, I attended a fundraiser for victims of the attack on the Nova Festival in Israel. And there I had the great honor of listening to the story of Natalie Sanandaji, a Persian Jew from New York, who attended the Psytrance Festival to dance and to feel the acceptance she only finds among her fellow peace-loving trancers. Now, of course, we all know what happened that day and the tragedies that have unfolded since then. It is deeply etched in our global consciousness. Today on Life is a Festival, Natalie tells her story about her experience on October 7th. To be clear, our conversation today is not about sensational details. We've all heard and seen a lot of those. It's not about moral positions. Natalie and I have deliberately chosen to focus exclusively on the experience of a young person caught in an unbelievable situation. Doesn't offer any solutions to the crisis in the Middle East. That is far beyond my understanding. And it is not my position to take positions that I don't fully understand, although I continue to listen to the stories of everyone affected in this conflict. If you are looking for a really graceful and touching conversation between an Israeli and a Palestinian, I would recommend my previous episode, which was with Midburn co-founder Sharon Avrahim and his theme camp co-lead, the Palestinian peace activist Sami Awad. They speak much better on this subject than I ever could. This conversation today is simply to illustrate how one young woman is transforming terror into service and to recognize the extraordinary courage and love of the good souls of the tribe of Nova. On the show, Natalie shares the unique magic of Psytrance in fostering acceptance and peace. And we pay tribute to the souls lost at the Nova Festival. Natalie recounts the harrowing experience of making what she refers to as choiceless choices in the face of terror, how she's psychologically processing the attack, and her emergence as a leader and spokesperson, including her involvement in the fundraiser where we met. Natalie is an Iranian Jew born and raised in New York and a survivor of the Nova Festival terror attack. She hosts the Persian Girl podcast, where she and her co-host, Millie Ephraim, discuss topics deemed taboo in the Persian community and interview a wide range of guests who offer a new perspective. There's a link to that podcast in the show notes, and I suggest checking it out. And now, here is Natalie Sanandaji. 
I've been thinking a lot about this conversation, thinking about what we both want in this experience. And my number one want and desire is to hold space for you to do what you want. But in general, for me on my side, I'm just interested in giving people an experience of hearing a firsthand account of someone who had an experience like you had. And I just feel like it's valuable for the festival community generally, for the Psytrance community, for people Mm -hmm. who spend a lot of time at events like this to feel a connection with someone who had this experience because it was so intense to see it and see footage and feel it and imagine I could be there. That could happen to me. That could be my sunrise head. And so holding space for someone to share their experience and how they're processing it and what it looks like for them and what it means in their life, that's what I'm very interested in. And as I mentioned over the phone, I'm less interested in solving the problems of the Middle East on this podcast. (laughs) I do not, and that's far above my pay grade. Um, So it's really just more about you and about your experience and just where you want to go and what you want to talk about today. So. That is my joy, picture, and intention. Tell me what you are most hopeful in arriving at or achieving today. Just in general, I like to say that like I'm excited to have the platform to talk about what happened, but not get into the politics of it. Because I feel yeah. like majority of the interviews I have been doing have been like trying to explain the politics. I'm not a political commentator. It's not something I did as a career before all of this happened, I just happened to have been someone at a party at the wrong party in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. And I think that's the funny thing is that now I get to actually just speak as Natalie, the girl who loves dancing and festivals as opposed to like Natalie, the American Israeli girl who's going to talk about this terror attack. You know, I, I get to like feel like a little bit more like myself mm. And just talk about it from the perspective of a side trans girl who loves festivals and who loves to come together and have those little moments of connection on the dance floor. Mm. And I actually get to get into that instead of talking really about the horror of it mm. and maybe get in more to like the beauty of like what happened before the attack. Mm. So I'm excited to be able to like talk about it through a different lens this yeah. time because I've just in like over 30 interviews of only talking about it kind of in one way. And I'm, I'm happy to be able to like, thank you for giving me the space to talk about it in a different way. Well, you came to the right place. <laughs> we are very much in alignment about this. And for me, I'm honored to make some space for you so you can be thank here you. and share. And I like that we have a, a lot of alignment about what our project is today because that that's the beginning of building the trust that allows us to have the deeper and more vulnerable conversation. Yes. <sighs> Natalie, welcome to Life is a Festival. Thank you. It's an honor to have you here. Happy to be here. I am going to start by doing the thing that we podcasters do at the end, which is you have a podcast. Yes. You're a podcaster. <laughs> so usually at the end of the show, I'm like, tell me about your podcast. But I think that's actually a nice way to start and for our audience to learn a bit about you yeah. biographically. Tell me a bit about your podcast, what you talk about on your show, and why you do it. So my podcast is Persian Girl Podcast. And it's so funny that you said that because literally at the end of every episode, it's me and my co-host. And at the end of every episode, I would like go to the guest and be like, okay, now it's time to plug yourself. So it is what we all do at the end. So it's called Persian Girl Podcast. And me and my co-host started this podcast about... I would say five years ago at this point. Wow. 
So she's from LA and I'm from New York, which are the two major Jewish Persian communities in America. And we originally started the podcast almost as therapy for ourselves. We started it anonymously because we wanted to give a voice to the Persian girls of the Iranian communities in America. But most Persians tend to know each other. And we thought that if all of the listeners knew who we were right off the bat, that they would be too focused on who we are and not what we're talking about. So we started it anonymously. And then after we got some traction, we decided to come out and say who we are. Also because we got multiple anonymous emails from listeners saying, I know who you are. And then they said our names. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like the most Persian thing ever. It was a very funny start to our podcasting career. But basically we talk about how the Persian community in America is almost a time capsule of what Iran was before the revolution because most of the Persian Jews left a little bit before the revolution because they knew what was coming and they knew that Jews wouldn't be so welcome there once the revolution started. And so our parents that came right before the revolution, they're almost a time capsule of what Iran was like back then. And that's how they raised us. So there's this dichotomy of growing up in America, which is a very modern country, but growing up with a lot of old-fashioned Middle Eastern ideals. And it could be very sexist at times. And we just wanted to give a voice to all the girls that don't really have the place to talk about that. And it was really beautiful, honestly. A lot of the messages that we would get from listeners was like, you guys make me feel less alone. Listening to you guys talk about all these issues shows me that I'm not the only one dealing with them. And it's been a beautiful journey and experience doing this podcast and having guests on to come talk about their issues with the community and also shed a a good light on the community. There's so much beautiful culture in the Persian community. But yeah, so that's the reason we started the podcast. It was mostly like therapeutic for us to come out and talk about it. And then it just felt so good to see the reaction of people from our community like reaching out to us and telling us how we made them feel less alone and we made them feel heard. And yes, that's who I am. That's what my podcast is about. We're going to put a pin in what is therapeutic for you mm-hmm. because it's, there's going to be a point in this conversation where we're going to need to discuss what is therapeutic for you and, mm-hmm. and what that means in your life in this moment now. But as a way to just continue to get to know you and your relationship to the experience that you had, On the podcast, have you ever talked about your love of festivals, the way you relate to music, the importance of this in your life personally? Not so much because most of our topics in our podcast were things about the Persian community, the Iranian community, and the American community. Like we would also have like people from Iran come on the podcast and talk about what it's like growing up in Iran versus what it's like growing up in the Iranian community in America. So it was mostly focused like on that like niche subject. So I I never really spoke about my personal life and the fact that like I love festivals and the fact that I love psytrance or techno or whatnot. Why do you love festivals? Number one, I mean, just the music. I I love the high BPM, especially Psytrance. Techno was like my core for a few years. And then I got into Psytrance. And I'm like, oh my God, this is just happy techno. Techno is kind of like angry and like dungeony. And Psytrance is like, you want to listen to it 
in a forest and you just feel like there's fairies floating around you. It's just like very happy and it's also the highest BPM. It's like very energetic. One of the reasons why I love festivals is because of the type of people who go to these festivals. Let's say when you go out to like regular nightclub, it's a lot of snobbiness. It's a lot of what are you wearing? Who do you know? Are you in the VIP section? Do you have a table? If you accidentally bump into a girl, she'll like spill her drink on you. It's like a lot of like drama. And I remember I had a, I have a friend, one of my best friends, who's not into house music. But every time I would go to an event or a festival and then she would see me the next day, she would see how happy I am. And one time she told me, she was like, I'm almost like jealous that you're part of this community and that you go to these events. And like, I wish I was into that type of music because she's like, every time I see you after you've been to an event, it's just like your confidence and your happiness levels are through the roof. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, if you were there, you would understand why. It's because of like, it's all the little interactions you have on the dance floor. Because it's not creepy men coming up behind you and trying to grind on you. And it's not girls pushing you and looking at you funny. It's all these beautiful little moments. Someone giving you a friendship bracelet or someone, a guy coming up to you, but not to try to grind on you. He wants to dance next to you. He wants to like give you energy and then feed off your energy. And it's just like all these beautiful little connections that you make throughout the night that really make the night. Yeah, I went to Boom Festival in 2016 mm -hmm. and I didn't understand Psytrance. And I actually spent a lot of the festival at Funky Beach, which was more like the house music spot. And I finally had like my full Psytrance experience and I got it, you know. And someone had told me that Psytrance is like a drug on top of your drug. <laughs> you know, as you probably know, it comes out of Goa Trance yeah. and it's very much music for psychedelics. It's yeah. literally created for that. And as your point about people grinding up on you, it's like when you're on a, a Psytrance dance floor, there's such nice spacing between yeah. people. They're, they're really well spaced out. Yeah. And they're almost kind of like one hive, just all kind of moving together. And it really is, it's a really special music of oneness. Yeah. And it takes a while, it takes a while to get into it to understand how it works, because it can be a little intense and seem so cacophonous. But once you have that driving BPM, you kind of settle into it. It's kind of like a container for you, that BPM. You know, yeah. you get into a trance. And it's a very special kind of music. And to your point earlier, it's a very special community. It's a peace-loving community. Yeah, it out, really out of is. all of the house music communities, I would say Psytrance is probably the smallest one. It's a very select type of person that's into Psytrance in general. And it's probably the most hippie. I've been to Psytrance events and clubs and... It doesn't do it justice dancing to Psytrance in an enclosed space on a cement or tiled floor. Really feeling Psytrance when it's outdoors, open air, dancing on dirt. That's like when you really feel it. I remember one night I went to a, a Psytrance event at a club um, in Tel Aviv and I went alone and I've never felt so not alone. I just went alone and everyone's just like talking to everyone. I remember one guy, for example, was like, you have such a good energy. Can I just dance next to you? And I'm like, yeah, of course you can dance next to me. He just like danced next to me for like maybe half an hour. I don't know how long it was. And then when he was like ready to go, he was like, it was such an honor to feel your energy and dance beside you. See you later somewhere on the dance floor. And I was like, okay, like awesome. 
it, it really is the type of community where you can go alone and just not feel alone at all. What is the tribe of Nova? Had you been to one of their events before? And what's your relationship to the community that put on the Nova Festival? So it was actually my first time going to one of their events. I personally, as someone growing up in New York, there's not very much a Psytrans community in New York. Psytrans DJs don't generally come here. They don't generally have Psytrans parties. And also, more specifically, they tend to not have what they call in Israel, quote-unquote, nature parties, Mesibateva. And most of the Psytrans parties in Israel tend to be like in the forest or in a field like where the Nova Festival party was. So it was my first time going to the Nova uh, Festival. And I personally don't know anyone or I thought I didn't know anyone who was part of setting up the festival or playing at the festival. I actually later found out that my boss at the company I work at here in New York, his brother was one of the DJs that night and unfortunately was killed during the whole attack. But overall, it was my first time going. It was my first time experiencing it. I had heard a lot about it. I knew about the party probably a month prior to getting to Israel and like already had all these plans of going and like looking at the lineup and um, was very excited for the experience. It definitely, I, I mean, no one could have imagined what was going to happen there. But I heard a lot of good things about Nova in general. From what I've heard from other people that were at the festival, other survivors, the Nova Festival comes to Israel like a few times a year and throws events. So it's a well-known festival circuit. So let's talk about October 7th. And as a way of starting, I know you've been speaking about this a lot. You've been doing a lot of interviews. And our opening of this conversation, before I welcome you to the show, was about you sharing that this was an opportunity for you to tell your story in perhaps a different way. And so as a way of opening you sharing your story, which I'm sure that our listeners are very interested to understand what it was like for a person to have that experience. How do you want to talk about it? What would be most nurturing for you to discuss this experience in this moment? I guess what would be most nurturing for me is to talk about a lot of the things that happened before the attack. Because that's not something that people ask me about when I speak on news channels and I do all these other interviews and articles, they never ask me about what happened before the attack. It always starts with, okay, so you got there, and then what time did the rockets start coming? That's always where they want to start. And I never really get to talk about what came before that. Yeah, well, let's do that. Why don't you tell us about what it was like to be with your friends, to arrive at a festival, to be out in the desert? We got there at around one, and something that... I'm sure a lot of people who listen have been to festivals like this where it's either like over 24 hours or a couple of days. So originally I think the Nova Festival was supposed to be a little longer than what it ended up being because, you know, sometimes there's cancellations, the schedule changes around, goes from being two days to like a day and a half or whatnot. So it started, I think, at around 10 or 11 p.m. and it was supposed to go until like 2, 4 the next afternoon. 
So everyone comes and they set up like their little campsite with their friends and then they go to the dance floor. So I arrived with three friends and when we got there, we got there at around 1 a.m. And I only know the, knew those three people when we first arrived. And then we met up with 15 of their other friends who had already set up the campsite. And one thing, when we were first getting there, I think a week prior, I had went to another party and I was a girl coming with some guy friends and there were a bunch of girls already in the group. And sometimes girls can be a little territorial of their friend group and of their guy friends. So I remember arriving at this party and the girls that I met there were very standoffish from the beginning. And I heard them like go up to one of their guy friends and be like, who brought her? Who is she? What's her name? What's her deal? Why? What is she doing here? And like I just like pretended like I didn't hear them because I tend to not feed into those types of things. I don't like to confront those type of situations. I'd rather just ignore and enjoy my night. So after that experience, I got to the Noah Festival and I was like, okay, this is the same situation happening again. I'm coming with some guy friends and there's girls that are already there. And I was a little, I was holding back a little bit just because I was like anxious of what the reaction of these girls might be. And then... We get there, we get to the campsite and I just remember sitting down in one of like the chairs that we had outside of the tents and not talking to anyone at first and automatically these three girls come up to, to me and they're like, oh, like what's your name? Where are you from? Here, have some snacks, have a drink. Like I'm so excited for us to party together. And then it just reminded me again, oh yeah, like I forgot where I am. I forgot that I'm surrounded by trans people and that they're all welcoming and that they're all friendly and that they're all loving. And it's just not the same vibe as a lot of other parties and that you don't have to have that anxiety of like people being standoffish or mean. It's so beautiful to be in a place surrounded by a very specific type of people that are just very open and there's no aggression and there's no cattiness it's just all love and that's really like how you feel when you go into these environments you could just feel it like everyone's smiley and everyone's friendly and it's just beautiful it's just such a good feeling and I just remember getting there and like automatically like talking to these people and going to the dance floor and it, it does make me sad like when I think about it like the fact that they were such good souls there at this party and for, like specifically for this party to be the one to get attacked in such a horrific way. It's just like, it just seems so unfair. Like, I think that's part of the horrific juxtaposition for many people who heard about this. You know, for those of us who have been in these environments, who've been in that sunrise moment mm -hmm. where everyone is connecting, many people are on psychedelic drugs mm -hmm. and we are in a project of oneness. We're in a project of connection. We're actually intentionally being as open and vulnerable as we can. Mm -hmm. And the festival is a safe container to do that. That's what it presents itself as. And those of us who care about this culture strive to make it so you know we have these we have workshops about consent so that people feel safer mm -hmm. we do harm reduction around drugs so that people feel safer in a way 
many of us enter these environments because they're containers to open your heart. And I think that's part of what is just so terrible about this experience was all of it is terrible. Everything that was happening that day yeah. is horrific and brutal and grisly. And, but the interruption of that particularly heart-opened moment for these mm-hmm. mostly young people, to me that's just so deeply tragic. And yeah, I just want to take a moment before we move forward with your story, as you said, that these were good souls. And whatever you can say geopolitically, these were people who went to a party to celebrate, to connect with each other, and to grow into more open-hearted people. And before we move forward, I just want to take a moment to honor and send love to them and everyone who was affected that day and just, in a sense, dedicate our conversation to them, to you as one of them, survivors and those who tragically did not survive. But I love that you said that they were good souls. They they welcomed me with open arms and... That's the thing. Like you said, it becomes like almost like this community for whatever amount of time the party is, like whether it's two days or a day, you really become like a community. Like everyone's there for each other. And you even saw it as we were running from like the rockets and the gunshots. You saw the way the way these kids acted. Nobody was ever pushing each other out of the way to run away from the gunshots. Like everyone was like helping each other. Everyone was like, if someone fell, like someone pulled them up. There were kids there that like lost their group as they were running. And other kids were like, okay, you're with us now. A lot of us forgot to take water with us because when we had to leave our cars behind and start running from the gunshots, we just left everything in the car. But like some people like grabbed a water bottle and then anyone who had water and then someone was like hysterically crying. And obviously when you cry, it's making you more dehydrated and you need to drink a little bit, bit of water. Everyone was like offering them a bottle. You even saw like the from the way they took care of each other in those moments, in those scary moments, you can see like they're from that community. You could see that psychedelic community in them. And it was, it was like, as sad as it is to say, it was beautiful to see in that moment the way everyone took care of each other and the way everyone was really there for each other. Because there, there are so many instances of shootings and then you hear like stories of like people trampled over each other and end up killing each other when because they were trying to wait, run away from the shooting. And like you just didn't see that here. You just really saw people take care of each other. You really saw that they really were psychedelic kids that they really were caring and loving even in those moments, even for some of them it was their last moments. And you still saw that in them. It's a beautiful tribute to those people. Can you describe to me the moment that you knew that something very serious was happening? So first I'll start from back to us arriving. We arrived at one me and my three friends, we probably danced for like about two hours until three. And then we all did something a little unusual for us or especially for me because anyone who knows me, anyone who's partied with me knows that I'm always the person who does not leave the dance floor for the entirety of the party. As long as the music is still on, I am dancing. 
It doesn't matter if I'm exhausted. I'd rather be exhausted on the dance floor and, oh my God, I'm about to faint, but I just have to keep moving. The music is so good. Then go and sit down. But at around three, we all decided that we were a little bit tired. And we said, okay, we're going to go back to the campsite, which the campsite was right by the dance floor. You could still hear the music from your campsite. And we said, we're going to go back to the campsite, sit on the chairs, take a nap for a few hours, and then wake up for the sunrise set and be fully refreshed and ready to dance. So we went to sleep at around 3. And then at around 6.30, one of the girls from our campsite came to wake us up. She wanted to make sure that we were alert and we knew what was happening. So she came to wake us up and she was explaining to all of us, but like mostly to me because she knew I was the only American in the group. She explained it this way. She was like, I just wanted you to know some rockets were intercepted overhead, but it's fine. It'll probably just be a few. It's kind of normal for the area that we're in and hopefully it'll pass. Don't, don't freak out. Don't worry. And just try to imagine anywhere else in the world where a festival is going on and suddenly rockets are being intercepted over kids' heads and they react in such a calm manner. That just wouldn't happen. But for Israeli kids, this is their reality. This is something that they've gone through before. They've all been in bomb shelters countless times in their lives. So... I didn't want to like start freaking out right away. So I was like, okay, I'm going to look at them. I'm going to look at their reactions and try to mirror them. Another thing I want to point out is the fact that me and my three friends, before everything started, we were sleeping. So we were more well-rested than everyone else or than most of the people. And we were also completely sober. And a lot of the people weren't. So there's enough... PTSD and like there's enough that can like freak you out from hearing rockets intercepting over your head but especially if you're on a psychedelic or on anything else and that's happening it can cause serious damage and I I do feel fortunate for the fact that the four of us were all well rested and sober when everything was happening so back to the moment where we like first kind of realized it wasn't just going to be a few rockets and the party would continue was when the music shut off. I remember we all just stood up and we're like looking above us and we see the rockets being intercepted. And I kind of went into this automatic shock. I didn't even know how to react. Like my, I wasn't reacting to anything. Even like when the gunshots were going off, I felt like I was having like an out-of-body experience the entire time and like I was watching somebody else go through it and like the real me was up there and it wasn't happening to me and it felt like I was watching it happen to someone else. It was a very weird feeling. So this is a dissociative experience, of course. Have you had dissociation previously in your life? Have you had any traumatic experiences where your system has taken that route as a way of managing the intensity of the experience? a good question I think like I want to say yes I think growing up anytime something bad would happen I would try to not feel it I guess and I guess that's disassociation 
So yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that, is, that that is what that <laughs> That's is. That's the definition. Well, and, yeah. and you know, when you, when I when I saw you speak, you didn't specifically mention this piece, and I think it's really interesting to pause for a minute. Just the experience of being in that moment, mm-hmm. I think, is really fascinating. What does your system do? Yeah. And you're in a festival environment, and you've been leaning towards openness. So it sounds like your nervous system selected dissociation yeah. as a way of just being able to handle it all. And luckily you had friends there who were like, no, you need to run now. So yeah, so I didn't even mention that in the past because I didn't know I did that until a few days ago. I was talking to my friend on the phone and he was like, Natalie, these past few weeks we've just been laughing at the fact that you're like the spokesperson of the survivors because you would literally, every time we started getting shot at, you would literally just stand there and stare and look confused as if you're like you don't realize it's happening to you and we would have to like yell at you and like wake you up out of your trance make you run and i was like really i did that i don't even remember that and so he he made me aware of that i didn't even realize i i was so out of it your memory of these events is it similar to your memory of other events in your life is it like a patchy memory because i remember you telling your story and you told it at the the event that that you spoke at you told it in a way that felt very standardly biographically paced mm-hmm. do you remember the experience in a kind of linear fashion in that way or are there blank spots in your memory so i remember it pretty linear and i think i remember it very clearly because it literally feels like i was watching it happen to me so I wasn't like panicking at all throughout all of this. Like I, I didn't cry once. I didn't scream. I, I just did as I was told. But it, it felt like almost like a video game. It felt like I was watching a character in a video game and like it wasn't happening to me. So like I wasn't freaking out because I, I was like, it's not happening to me. It, it's a weird thing to explain. It sounds like a strategy. It sounds like a nervous system strategy, yeah. because there are different ways. You know, there's fight, flight, freeze. Mm-hmm. It sounds like freeze was what happened for you. Yeah, but you were taken care of. You had people who were like, "Run yeah. now!" So at certain points when we were running, I started to notice that it was mostly guys and very few girls, and that's because. Most people had to ditch their cars, but some people decided to stay in their cars and try to keep driving out. And the people who stayed in their cars along the way were picking up girls because obviously girls are going to tire out faster. It's like in the Titanic, women and children first. So anyone who did stay in their cars and were still trying to get out by car ended up picking up girls as they were running and the girls would hop in the cars. And there were like one or two instances where people in cars asked me to get in. And I just kept thinking to myself, I'd rather keep running and be with people who know me personally and who will take care of me if if something does happen than get in these cars with strangers who are just trying to take care of me and save me. But at the end of the day, if the cars get shot down, which a lot of them did, they wouldn't specifically take care of me first. I I just felt safer sticking with my friends and continue running. was curious about the decision to run versus to be in a car and like how that decision was made. Indeed, how decisions were made generally. So maybe you could give us a little more like how things played out in such a way that mm-hmm. your you and your group were making choices. Do I run? Do I get in the car? Which direction do I run? How does one even know how to find safety in an environment like that? So 
I went to a vigil this past week for all those who were killed in Columbus Circle. And someone was speaking to me and he said that he's done like interviews with a lot of Holocaust survivors. And they would ask the Holocaust survivors, how did you make certain choices? How did you know which choice was going to save your life or get you killed? And a lot of these Holocaust survivors had a term that they used for the choices that they made called a choiceless choice. And it's basically a choice where you just have to make a choice. You had no idea which one was going to be the right one, but you just had to choose something. You just had to do something because it was like a split second decision. It was in the moment, you just had to make a choice. And they called it a choiceless choice. And that's how every choice felt for us, that it was just a choiceless choice. You had no idea of knowing which decision was going to be the right one because there were a lot of kids. We were running on and off, like running and walking on and off for about four hours. And throughout that time, we crossed paths with many different groups of other kids. And we later found out that some of the kids that like at a certain point were on the same path as us, but then made a different choiceless choice along the way, ended up getting killed because their choice got them killed. Our choice saved us. And that just kept happening. So I'll first I'll go back to the rockets. The first time we realized something was like wrong was when it, it probably got past like 10 rockets and it was like, then it was like 15, 20. You start to realize that this isn't just like a normal situation of five, 10 rockets and then it stops. So the festival security turns off the music and they ask everyone to please start evacuating to their cars, pick up all your equipment, your camping stuff and go to your cars. So on the way to the cars, at this point, we still didn't know that there were terrorists on foot with guns. Our biggest fear was like scraps from the intercepted rockets hitting our cars when we're driving out. And our second biggest fear was the traffic because we figured, okay, this festival is happening in a field and you couldn't drive through most of this field unless you had the four-wheel drive. So it was thousands of kids leaving at the same time and we all had to drive down one dirt road. So I told my friends on the way to the car, I was like, do you guys think I have time to go to the bathroom quickly because we're probably going to be stuck in traffic for a while? And they were like, yeah, yeah, no rush. It's fine, go to the bathroom. At the time, I didn't know how much I was actually putting my life in danger by going to the bathroom. And I still didn't realize until about like a week and a half, two weeks after the event, I saw a video that had surfaced of the Hamas terrorists coming to those exact bathrooms moments after I was there and just shooting at every stall, trying to kill anyone who was hiding inside. And I think personally, that was one of the videos that was like hardest for me to see because you just, I remember being there. I remember being in those bathrooms and like hearing the rockets being intercepted overhead. And I was like, okay, I have to pee really quick. I need to go back to the car. I never would have imagined while I was in that stall that like moments later, like terrorists were going to come shoot at those stalls. It's just like crazy to think about. So I finish doing my business, go back to the car and we start driving out. And another thing I want to say, a lot of people ask, oh, do you think the security did enough? The festival security never could have imagined that something like this would happen. And they definitely did do enough. And most of them gave their lives. Most of them died trying to guide us in the right direction. So it was like thousands of kids in cars all trying to go down one dirt road. 
the festival security was on golf carts on the sides of the dirt road and they were almost like sheep herders and we were the sheep and they were trying to guide us in the right directions. So that seems like a that seems like a horribly unkind question whether this security yeah. did enough. I mean you're a festival security like how on earth are you able to respond to that? Yeah. And as you said that these people took their roles seriously mm-hmm. and didn't run for their lives and they actually were like trying to help people. So the question of like, did you think they did enough? It just seems... It's insensitive. Yeah, it's insensitive. People have asked me a lot of insensitive questions and I don't, I don't blame them. I don't think they mean to. I think they're just like curious and it's human nature to be curious. Yeah. But like a lot of people, like <laughs> this might offend a lot of people that I've spoken to recently. And I don't think they mean it in a bad way, but like just one question I really hate getting is, did you see the terrorists with your own eyes? And I literally look these people dead in the face and I'm like, if I got close enough to see them with my own eyes, I probably wouldn't be here today. When you hear gunshots, you don't turn around to be like, oh, what does the person who's shooting at me look like? You run. I never turned around to try to see what they look like. I just, I kept running. And also another thing is, I've never heard gunshots before, but it wasn't like a type of gunshot of like a handgun where it's like more of like a boom. It's coming from like a rifle, so it's more of like a whistle. So so when the bullet flies, it sounds like a whistle and I couldn't really tell what direction it was coming from. So, So basically we go to our cars, the festival security is telling everyone to drive in a certain direction. It's a lot of traffic. It's a lot of congestion. And then they start telling everyone to turn around and drive in another direction. And then we're starting to get a little bit nervous and like a little confused as to like why they're asking us to do this. But we like turn around, we start driving in the other direction, and then they start yelling at everyone, pull your cars over to the side of the road and get out and run. At this point, I'm completely confused. I'm like, what do you mean run? Run from the rockets? Like, why would I, what? Why would I run from rockets? Driving sounds like the best idea. But we're like, okay, we're going to listen to them. They're trying to help us. So we pull our cars over and we're like sitting in the car, me and the three friends I was with, we're like sitting in the car for a few moments and we're like, why would they ask us to get out of the car and run? And that's when we heard like the first gunshots and then you realize, oh, okay, there's terrorists here on foot. They're much closer than we think, and they have guns. So as soon as we heard the first gunshots, we all just opened our doors and we started running. So kids were running in every direction. And one of the most terrifying things was when me and my friends were running in a specific direction, and we thought we were running towards safety, And then suddenly we see dozens of kids running in our direction and we realize that they're being pursued and they're being shot at and they're running away from a terrorist. And you then realize, okay, the direction that I've been running in is not safe and I now have to change directions. So at this point, it's probably like around 7.30, I would say. And... Once again, we had to make one of those choiceless choices and just make a decision in that moment and change directions, not knowing if that next decision was going to get us killed or save us. And then along the way, another choiceless choice we had to make was 
whether or not to hide or keep running. We passed by a ditch, and one of the kids that was in our campsite was hiding in this ditch with like a number of other kids, like maybe 10 other kids. And he saw us and he said, oh, like come, come down into the ditch, hide with us. And the four of us like start going down into the ditch. We were like contemplating it and we go down. And then as we're like going into the ditch, one of my friends was like, no, this is a bad idea. If we hide in this ditch and the terrorists come from above us, we're sitting ducks. They're just going to shoot us and kill us and that's it. So we decided to continue running instead of hiding. And we later found out that the kids who stayed back and hid were shot and killed. We continued to run for about four hours. Along the way, I remember passing by like some goats. I remember passing by a field of like orange trees and we're dehydrated. We've been running in the sun. We're wearing festival clothing. It wasn't really comfortable clothing for running for your life, running from terrorists. So I remember going into the trees and trying to find an orange that wasn't rotten and picking one and like peeling it and like feeding it to my friends that I was with. After about four hours, we hadn't heard gunshots in a few minutes and we passed by this little tree. So we decided to sit under the tree and get some shade for a few minutes and then continue walking. And while we were sitting under the tree, it was me and my three friends I came with and maybe like 10 other kids. We see this white pickup truck driving towards us and typically white pickup trucks like that were used by the Hamas terrorists. Like it was like a very typical car for them. So for all of us, our automatic reaction was they found us. Like this is a terrorist coming to kill us. And I remember looking at everyone and we all half got up thinking like to run. And then like at the same time, we all simultaneously realized where are we going to run to? Like he's in a car, he has a gun, we're on foot. And we all kind of looked at each other and smiled at each other and kind of accepted our fate and accepted like this is the end. We were all silent. None of us said a word. You smiled at each other? Yeah, we just like smirked and we're like, like shook our heads and we're like, we just like sat back down. We decided not to run. But we all accepted our fate. And it was just like, we like spoke without speaking. And it was just kind of like, okay, it was like nice knowing you. This is the end. Bye. Did you, at this moment when you were having this experience, was it still something where you felt like you were watching yourself in a video game? No, it felt, it's weird to say it felt almost peaceful. It felt like we were all just like experiencing it together at the same exact time. And we were all thinking the same thing at the same time without talking to each other. It was a very weird feeling, but it was just kind of like letting go. I I don't want to say giving up, but kind of giving up, accepting fate. And we all just like sat down and let the car drive towards us. And we thought that was it. But we got very lucky. 
It was not a terrorist. Obviously, I'm here today. It was a man from the town of Patish who had left the safety of his town and drove towards all of this, trying to save innocent lives. The way that we realized that this was a safe guy was the fact that he had a girl in his front seat and we saw that she had the wristband from the festival on her hand. So we understood he was trying to save us. So we all just hopped into the back of his pickup truck and he drove us to his town. And as soon as we got out of the truck, like I didn't even have a minute to like say thank you to him. I didn't even see his face really. He just dropped us off and he turned right back around and went to save more kids. You never got his name? I never got his name, no. Well, white pickup guy. <sighs> we salute your heroism. Yeah, there have been multiple people who reached out to me thinking that they know who it is and maybe trying to like get me in touch with him. And if it's possible, like I would love to get in touch with him and say thank you mm. for saving my life. When you had arrived in the town, did you feel that an attack could continue or did you feel like you were safe in the town and were you indeed safe in the town? So we still didn't feel like completely safe because there were still like red alerts, which meant that like a rocket was landing or being shot near the vicinity and we had to run into uh, the bomb shelter. But when he dropped us off, he dropped us off in the center of the town And there were like hundreds of other kids from the festival in the same place. A lot of us ended up there. And the people of the town were amazing. So this was Saturday. It was Shabbat. And the people of the town came to the bomb shelter. They brought cookies. They brought water. They brought juice. They brought chamin, which is like a type of like stew with like beans and meat that like people typically eat on Shabbat. And they were just trying to make us feel as safe and comfortable as possible. They really came together to help us. And there were even a lot of women walking around and reading off lists of names that they were receiving from parents whose kids were at the festival and could no longer get in touch with their kids. And they were worried that their kids were either killed or taken hostage. So they were just reading off lists of names hoping that one of these kids was there and that they could give their parents good news. It took a few hours for any soldiers to come and to kind of watch over the town and make us like feel a little bit safer. But once we did see soldiers, I think that's when we finally like took a deep breath. We're like, okay, like now we feel a little bit protected. When did you feel completely safe? I think once we got back to my friend's parents' house, I felt like, I felt safe. I was like, okay, it's over. It's okay. We made it. And on the flight, when the flight took off, that was probably the first time I cried since everything that had happened. It was just very emotional leaving Israel behind, leaving all my friends and family behind because... This attack was not going to be the worst of it. There was, like, we all knew that it was only going to get worse. And it's still not over. It's been a month. It's crazy to me to say that out loud, that it's been a month. Like, this month just was a whirlwind. What has this month been for you? 
overwhelming, to say the least, especially since getting back. I've done over 30 interviews. I've done probably 10, 15 events that I've spoken at. But aside from that, it's seeing the world's reaction to what happened. The Jewish people were attacked by a terrorist organization, by Hamas. And the world's reaction was throwing salt on our open wounds. The amount of anti-Semitism that's gone up in Europe, in America, especially in New York. New York itself has, I think, the biggest Jewish population in all of the United States. And as a Jew growing up in New York, I always felt very safe. I was a very privileged Jew. I never had to hide my Judaism. I never had to be afraid to show off the fact that I'm Jewish. It was never, I never feared anything like that. I remember the first time I, I realized that there's still anti-Semitism in the world was which sounds funny to say, but that's really how privileged I was as a Jew, like growing up in New York. I was like, what, people aren't, aren't still anti-Semitic? It's not a thing. I remember the first time I really realized that was going to France and visiting my family friends. And we were on the, on the train and my family friend told me to tuck my Jewish star necklace under my shirt. And I was like, why? What do you mean? And she was like, well, if someone sees it, they might try to harass you. So just like tuck it in for now. I was shocked. But now I see my friends doing that here in New York. And that's so crazy to me that here in New York, kids are afraid to express their Judaism. And I've said that in multiple interviews that I've had recently that if we are scared and if we hide who we are, it's almost like letting them win. And I'm not telling people to put themselves in harm's way. If you feel really unsafe, take a step back. Okay, tuck in your necklace and like take yourself out of that situation. Don't put yourself in harm's way. But also like I don't want to live in a world where I have to be scared to say that I'm Jewish. And I don't want to live in a world where I have to be scared to wear my Star of David necklace out. And this kid I know like sent me a photo of himself today of him wearing his necklace outside of his shirt and he was like I just wanted you to know like I decided today I decided to start wearing it out again and he was like your words are really inspiring me and I'm like telling people to listen to your interviews and that made me so happy because that's part of the reason why I'm doing these interviews as as much as people tell me that they think it's like therapeutic for me to like be telling my story I'm really I'm doing these interviews to make other people stronger. I'm doing them partially to speak for those who can't speak for themselves, those who are currently still being held hostage, those who were murdered, to speak on their behalf and share their story. Because it's not really about me. It's not really about my story. It's about the bigger picture. But I'm also doing them to hopefully try to empower those who feel scared right now and to show them that if I can go through all of that and not feel scared, you guys can do it too. You preempted one of the questions that I was very interested in asking you today, which is, what is your why now? And it sounds like there's a kind of dharmic 
response to the experience you had. You know, obviously we met when you were doing, you were speaking at a fundraiser Mm -hmm. for victims from the festival and you agreed to do this show and you've done many interviews and I imagine that it's quite exhausting. And so, yeah, I I have been curious about your why and, and your goals, like what you most want people to get from when you share your story. For the listener right now who has heard your story and who can identify with you in being at a festival, what do you want the listener to know about you, about this experience? What do you want from our listener today? I guess what I want the listener to know about me is that is that I truly care about all humans and that to me... What happened in Israel isn't about the politics and that whatever your stance is on like Israel versus Palestine is not what this is currently about. This is about a terrorist organization who, I've said this before and I'll say it again, who is just as complicit in the deaths of innocent Palestinians as they are in the deaths of innocent Israelis. And it's just, to me, the fact that it happened at a festival, the fact that these kids died really doing what they love most, which is like spreading joy and love, especially at a Psytrance festival. Like I said, like to them, it's all about like community and love and like spreading their love and giving it to others. I want us to be able to come together and I want us to be able to remember those kids for the happy kids that they were. I also, I want to see a day where we can all move past this as also as like the music community. And I hope that we can still all like dance together and appreciate each other for our differences and not fuel hate, but try to bring more peace. Because that's what like all all these kids were about. They were about peace and they were about love. And like I said before, you saw that even as we were running for our lives. Like you saw the way they like cared about each other and took care of each other and really showed each other so much love even in in those moments. We started this podcast with me asking a question that we usually ask at the end. And I'd like to end the podcast by asking you a question that another interviewer might ask you at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that is this, Natalie, how are you doing really? How are you doing? I feel like that's a hard question for me to answer. And I think it goes back to the disassociation. Just like I said, with the disassociation in the moment of me feeling like I'm watching all of this happen to me, to myself or watching it happen to someone else. Like I felt like it wasn't happening to me in that moment. I also feel a type of disassociation when I'm talking about it. I feel like I'm telling somebody else's story. I don't feel like I'm telling my story. Have you felt that way today? Yeah, I think I still feel that way. I keep telling people that if I am disassociating and if eventually it is going to hit me and I am going to feel all those emotions of the fact that I went through something traumatic, then I consider my disassociation my superpower for now. 
because it's giving me the ability to speak out about what happened and share my story over and over again without breaking down and without it causing me more pain. Because I I do know a lot of people that knew people who were at the festival who survived. And they said that their friends didn't leave their room for a week and that they didn't want to speak to anybody for a week. And that's okay. Everyone reacts to trauma differently. There's no bad reaction. There's no good reaction. Trauma is always bad. And however you react is your body's natural way of reaction. You don't get to choose. And who knows, maybe I'm just happy to be alive and maybe I'm just a naturally happy person and maybe I am going to be okay. Or maybe there is some truth to that, but then there's also the disassociation. Maybe I still am disassociating and maybe it is going to hit me in two weeks time, in a month time. And if it will, then that's fine. But I really do consider my dissociation my superpower for now because it's giving me the ability to speak out now while it's still relevant, which I think is so important. It's so important to bear witness and it's so important to speak about what happened because it's very obvious to me that there's a lot of misinformation being spread about what happened and it's very sad. And that's why I'm coming out and speaking because I'm hoping that maybe if people listen to me talk and they listen to the whole interview or the whole episode or just if they hear me out and they see that I am calm, I'm not coming at anyone in a combative way, maybe they will listen and maybe they'll realize that hate does not cancel out hate and that killing innocent people doesn't save other innocent people and that maybe they don't actually know what they think that they know and that They'll go do more research and they'll try to understand the situation better. And maybe it'll create like a ripple effect. Maybe they'll better understand the situation. And then they'll explain the situation better to like their 10 closest friends. And then those people will explain it better to someone else. And then we can have more understanding in this world. Part of why I do podcasts generally and part of why I wanted to do this podcast is because it's a very different experience to be with a human's journey Mm -hmm. and listen to them and get to know them and feel them than it is to see clips online and comments. There's so many really intense voices and media moves according to outrage and there's so much happening right now. And for me, with this show and wanting to be of service to the festival community, I wanted to have you on the show so we could meet you and so that we could understand your experience. And I'm fascinated by what it would mean to be there and how one processes it and what you do with this. How do you turn it into something that brings love into the world? How do you take all of your adversity and turn it into something that brings love in the world? And that's why I wanted to have you on the show because that's what I felt when I first heard you speak is that you had this incredible, terrifying experience. People that you know died and you were interrupted in a place that's supposed to be safe. And now you're metabolizing that psychologically and you're trying to be of service. And I really admire that. So I really appreciate you doing so. And I appreciate you coming on this show with me today. Thank you. I, I appreciate you having me on and giving me yet another platform with a completely different audience that I probably haven't been able to reach up until now. It really means a lot.
to, to be able to speak about my experience. And I hope that whoever's listening can relate to this and hopefully it'll touch them in a way. Hopefully it'll make them understand that truly like hate does not cancel out hate. And that in these moments more than ever, we need each other, especially like the music community, the festival community. We need each other. We need to come together. We need to spread more of that love because that purity and that love that you experience on the dance floor is really missing right now in the world. Like I just see so much hate in the world and I just find it so scary. And I just hope that I hope that we can eradicate that a little bit and I hope we can like bring a little bit more light and love. May we bring more love into the world. Natalie, I appreciate you. Appreciate you shining. And it may be that you have an emotional process that needs to continue to unfurl in many different ways. Who knows? But I do believe that being of service and showing up in the world is generally the right move. And there may be some self-care and there may be some therapeutic support that becomes more important to you as you continue to be with the experience you had. That may happen, who knows? In the meantime, I think it's really noble of you to put yourself out there so much and to try to connect with as many people as possible. And I think that our listeners today feel connected to you and are grateful for your time and your efforts as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for making me feel so comfortable. It was honestly really great speaking to you. You know, that's kind of like my whole thing. (laughs) That's part of why I wanted to have this conversation too is because it's like, it's not just about doing the podcast. It's also, you had some fucking crazy shit happen to you. And, And, you know, it's a privilege to be here and hold space and to have a conversation with this level of meaning and, and to speak not just about, did you see the terrorist? But like, how are you doing? Yeah. What is going on in your nervous system? <laughs> that seems like such a bizarre thing that would never be on your life's bingo card. Yeah. Right? You're running from terrorists, definitely. <laughs> yeah, certainly not from a Psytrance festival of all places. Uh, yeah. That's a, yeah. some horrific Mad Lib. Something I said to someone recently that like only occurred to me when I was speaking to my friend, but I was like, it's as if the Nova Festival was like this kind of time warp that I went through. And it was like going into the festival, my world and the world in general was completely different. And it's almost as if like during the festival, like time just warped. And then I come out of this time warp and the whole world has changed. And it's just, it's insane. Like I went to the festival Everything was different and I leave the festival and the world as I knew it is gone. It's crazy to me to think about. It really feels like the festival was like this black hole that I dived into and I came out into a completely different world. Well, I appreciate you making this new world a better place to the best of your ability. Thank you. May we all may we all do so and may we all just have deep compassion for everyone and these massive political forces are just so awful and complex. And there is, as you said, there are no winners. And I don't think that we need to go through the steps of all the various denouncements of all the different things mm-hmm. that are bad just to say that we stand for love. 
We stand yes. for peace. We stand for healing. Yes. This community of festival goers, the Psytrance community most especially, stands for peace, for love, for healing. And we need to continue to have these safe containers to grow and connect with each other. And, and I hope that the music community and the festival community is able to respond to this by continuing to create connections. Mm. We did a, I did a podcast with a Palestinian and an Israeli co-theme pa- camp leads mm-hmm. for Midburn. And what they were doing at Midburn was educating people about Palestinians and Israelis and connecting people to each other. That's what these spaces that's are. I love that, that. That's what we're trying to do. So I really love that. I at the end of the day, we're all human and we're all on this earth together and we're all on this journey together. And my mom would always say, whatever God you believe in, at the end of the day, it's all the same God. If you even believe in God. But like at the end of the day, we're all on the same planet. We're all humans just trying to coexist. I hope that like those lives on both sides just weren't lost in vain. And that hopefully we can try to come out of this better humans, more understanding humans, more compassionate humans, more loving that that's really all I can hope for because all the hate that I'm seeing right now just makes me really sad. It just truly makes me sad. So I hope we can come out of this better. Whatever God you pray to, that is a very noble prayer. And may we all have such a prayer. <sighs> Natalie, thank you so much for being on the program today. It's been an honor to meet you and thank to help you. share your story. Thank you for having me. And we are done. Do you feel that we we got everywhere? Was there anything that felt like it was a missed No, I, I think we even went into places I didn't think we would go to. So I'm um, happy we covered that is, a lot. That is the intention. <laughs> that is the intention to try to make it something that's different. Yeah. It feels almost like a therapy session, honestly. Yeah, because what we're doing is we're we're experiencing shared vulnerability. And if it feels like therapy, then it's good radio. Yeah. If it feels like you're like, wow, I feel really safe to say some stuff, then it's like the person listening feels that. And the person listening is like, yeah. oh, and they become more receptive to your message and become more receptive to your experience. And I think that the long form content is amazing for that as well. Like you can't get a sound bite that does what these do. Yeah, I agree. And like also just overall, I'm so happy that I finally had the opportunity to talk about what happened and not just talk about the war part, yeah, but talk about this community that was attacked. Talk about the Psytrance people and what they're like. and Because that's not something that all any of these news channels asked me. Literally every single one is, okay, so the rocket started at 6.30. And I'm just like, but there's so much more before that. There's yeah. so much more to it. And I'm just so happy that I got to like shed some light on that and like honor mm. them a little bit. Those know? good souls, yeah. those good peaceful people. Yeah, because really, truly, you saw the good in them even as we were running for our lives. Like, you saw the way that they were taking care of each other and taking care of people that they don't even know. You know, it was was honestly beautiful to see, like, even in those moments as we're running and just the way they were there for each other is the same way that they're there for each other on the dance floor. You know, and it kind of validates part of why we do it. We like the music, of course, but like the community, the togetherness, the being able to care for each other. And the fact that in literally the most dire situation, 
that kids are still taking care of each other. Yeah. Everybody's just doing their best and they're doing their best with love, even yeah. in that moment. And I think that's something that's so special about festival culture generally and why I work in festival culture and why it matters so much to me. And it's really, in spite of all of the horror and tragedy, it's actually been really enlivening for me to talk to you today and to hear that message. I think that message is almost like a through line of the conversation. What story is not being told? The story of the courage and love of these kids who just want to go listen to Psytrance and maybe do some acid and try to connect with each other that they were courageous and that yeah. they did take care of each other. And they took care of you. Like yeah. when you were dissociating, they were like, no, come on, we got you. I'm like, come <laughs> you do need it. to run. You need to run. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, good souls. Yeah, very good souls. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.